Hey there, Hit Parade listeners. I have a special announcement. This year marks the 25th anniversary of Slate. And for a limited time, we're offering our annual Slate Plus membership at $25 off. As a member, you get so many benefits, including right here at Hit Parade. You're about to hear part one of this Hit Parade episode, and part two will arrive in your podcast feed at the end of the month. But if you'd like to hear this episode all at once, the day it drops, you can sign up right now for Slate Plus. As a Slate Plus member, you'll get to hear every Hit Parade episode in full the day it arrives, plus Hit Parade The Bridge, our bonus episodes, with guest interviews, deeper dives on our episode topics, and pop chart trivia. Plus, you'll get no ads on any Slate podcast, unlimited reading on the Slate site, and member-exclusive episodes and segments, such as my favorite part of every week's Slate Culture Gabfest, their conversational Slot Plus segments. So, sign up at slate.com slash hitparadeplus to keep Slate going for another 25 years. But hurry, this offer of $25 off only lasts through October 31st. So, sign up now at slate.com slash hitparadeplus. Thanks, and now please enjoy part one of this Hit Parade episode. Welcome to Hit Parade, a podcast of pop chart history from Slate Magazine about the hits from coast to coast. I'm Chris Melanfi, chart analyst, pop critic, and writer of Slate's Why Is This Song Number One series. On today's show, 16 years ago this week, a song cracked the top 10 on Billboard's Hot 100 that had been climbing the chart for nearly four months. It had also been rising on the modern rock chart for almost five months, and the song's verbose chorus seemed to talk about the charts themselves. Its most memorable line, to me anyway, was, I'll be your number one with a bullet. Though it wouldn't quite reach number one with or without a bullet, the song, Sugar We're Going Down, would reach number three on the alt-rock chart and number eight on the pop chart. And it would not only break the band who recorded it, Fallout Boy, named for a minor character on TV's The Simpsons, it helped break an entire mini-genre with a genre name that none of the bands that were supposedly a part of it liked at all, Emo. Part of the reason Emo was so pilloried by the bands tagged with it was there was already a perfectly good name that seemed to match the tempo and attitude of these bands, Punk. And Punk had been around for at least 30 years. Punk's whole reason for being was rejecting the mainstream. But 20 years after it first emerged, 
punk went from an underground movement to a radio-dominating format. Soon enough, it fused with unabashed pop hooks into a genre that came to be called pop punk. And by the 2000s, pop punk became the mainstream, competing with hip hop as the sound of young America. In theory, pop punk was the bratty stuff. While emo was, as its name implied, the emotional, soul-bearing stuff. And certainly, emo allowed itself more flourishes, more baroque vocals, more, more. Oh, well imagine as I'm pacing the pews in a church corridor and I can't help but to hear, no I can't help but to hear in exchanging of words. But as the two styles merged, it became hard to know where the frothy fury of pop punk ended and the prolix profundity of emo began. In 2021, when you turn on the radio, Generation Z artists who were scarcely even born when some of these bands were commanding the airwaves have latched onto pop punk and emo's cathartic combination of head thrashing release and soul bearing confession. Even artists who used to call themselves rappers are now picking up guitars. Today on Hit Parade, it's time to acknowledge the influence on today's pop of punk rock. And I don't necessarily mean the critically acclaimed CBGB stuff. Those skater boys and skater gals with their piercings and wallet chains, crowd surfing on the Warped Tour. Don't look now, but that sound is back. Honestly, it never left. The roots of this music do go back to CBGB. And for my fellow Gen Xers, the 1990s were already a boom time for punk. But the apex of the pop-punk revolution arguably came in the aughts, when the torch was being passed from punk to emo. And that's where your hit parade marches today. The week ending October 15th, 2005, when the reigning kings of pop punk, Green Day, reached number six on Billboard's Hot 100 with their final top 10 pop hit, the elegiac Wake Me Up When September Ends, the same week that this song. Falls 
Fall Out Boy's Sugar, We're Going Down also cracked the top 10, signaling that the emo strain of punk was now ascendant. This was the moment when the rock zeitgeist began moving fully in emo's direction, from skinny jeans fashions to smarty pants song lyrics. Was there really any difference between punk, pop punk, and emo? Isn't it all just permutations of kids getting their rocks off and their rock on? Join me as we chart the punk scene's journey from Sid Vicious to Strip Mall. Ever think those fables and fairy tales from back in the day are just a little bit dusty? Wondery and Tinkercast are bringing you a new kids and family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Join host DJ Fuchs and his trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as they deliver remixes of fables and folktales, rhythm and rhymes, and fun spins on classics as old as time. Grab the whole family and get ready to groove because they're putting the rap in Rapunzel and getting down with that funky duckling. Where hip-hop and fables meet, it's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to all episodes of Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. In their 1991 book, The Worst Rock and Roll Records of All Time, co-authors Jimmy Guterman and Owen O'Donnell offered a list of rules of rock and roll. The commandments they handed down to those avoiding bad music included such received wisdom as rock lyrics are not poetry, supergroups never are, videos are commercials, and Elvis is dead. But the decree of theirs that sticks out in my memory is this rule, quote, punk happened, note tense, unquote as in past tense. The implication of this commandment is that punk was a movement. It happened in the 70s, maybe the early 80s, and it is long over. And, by implication, any band or artist who came along later claiming to be punks were just posers. Now, there are a lot of things I disagree with in The Worst Rock and Roll Records of All Time. I quote this book a lot on Hit Parade because it's hilarious, and it serves as a useful straw man for crotchety, late boomer-era opinions about popular music. But punk happened past tense is, as far as I'm concerned, just not true. I mean, sure, I accept that in the 70s, punk was a movement. That's what fans of The Clash meant when they called them, quote, the only band that mattered. But punk is also just a genre, one that long ago passed into the dictionary. Rock music that is played in a fast, loud, and aggressive way, and is often a protest against conventional attitudes and behavior as one dictionary puts it. 
you can make new versions of this music at any time. And generations of later punk rock, from Bad Brains to Rancid, give the lie to the idea that punk ended 40 years ago. Now, because the common definition of punk includes the idea of protest or unconventionality, that implies that the music is challenging to the point of unlistenability. And this is bollocks, too. Here's the dirty little secret. Punk has always been catchy. A lot of it has pop hooks. You don't just slam dance or thrash your head. You can bob your head or tap your foot to it, too. Not for nothing did UK punkers The Buzzcocks title their classic compilation album Singles Going Steady. One more myth we should blow up about Punk Happened is the idea that there is only one original, pure strain of punk. To be sure, the kind that broke in the mid-70s, say the Ramones or the Sex Pistols, was called, at the time, simply punk rock. No hyphens, no hybrids, no qualifiers. But punk was never pure. It was evolving almost instantly, within its first year, into post-punk and new wave with bands like Television, Talking Heads, and Blondie. And honestly, if you dig through the roots of the music, the stuff we now call proto-punk, you realize it was a mongrel art form from the jump. Whether those roots are in 60s garage rock, like Question Mark and the Mysterians' lo-fi 1966 number one hit, 96 Tears. And you'll stop crying. 96 Tears. Or Detroit rockers The Stooges, led by Iggy Pop. They were quite literally regarded as punks in the late 60s and early 70s, before punk rock was a thing. By the time Hilly Crystal's downtown New York City club CBGB began fomenting the early punk rock scene in 1973, 74, and 75, Punk could mean anything from the cross-dressing New York dolls to the equally androgynous poet-turned-rocker Patti Smith. The point is, from its birth, punk never really had one sound. This is important to establish because it opens up possibilities from the 1980s onward. 
punk would burst in a myriad of different directions, laying the groundwork for late 20th and early 21st century punk, precursors that were just as important as the Ramones, the Pistols, and the Clash. In fact, the forms of punk we're going to discuss in this episode, which were very commercial, evolved out of punk scenes that thought of themselves as defiantly uncommercial, whether it was the agitprop of late 70s, early 80s trolls, the Dead Kennedys, the relentless rock of Black Flag, often called the godfathers of hardcore. So-called post-hardcore of the mid-80s, spearheaded by uncompromising Washington, D.C. avatars Fugazi. To the ska-punk hybrids of Operation Ivy. And the sludgy punk of noise rockers Flipper. With rare exception, none of this punk got anywhere near the Billboard charts. Dead Kennedy's 1980 debut, Fresh Fruit for Rotting Vegetables, bubbled under the top LPs chart at number 204. And Fugazi never charted in their 80s heyday and barely cracked the Billboard 200 in the mid-90s. Of course, by the 90s, something seismic had happened that suddenly made it plausible for bands like Fugazi to chart. Nirvana's Nevermind album broke on the charts in late 1991. While the Aberdeen group was tagged with the newly coined phrase grunge, Nirvana singer and songwriter Kurt Cobain was, more accurately, a hardcore punk fan. Flipper was one of his favorite groups, as were such post-hardcore and noise rock bands as The Melvins, Scratch Acid, and The Jesus Lizard. And drummer Dave Grohl had earned his stripes in the same DC hardcore scene that spawned Fugazi. Even after Nirvana broke on the charts and grunge became a hot music industry buzzword, the band continued to ally themselves with the punk scene. They made several memorable appearances in the 1992 documentary from director David Markey, 1991, The Year Punk Broke. Indeed, most of the successful bands from the grunge boom considered themselves descended from punk. Pearl Jam, for example, showed off their punk chops on the 1994 single Spin the Black Circle, a number 18 Hot 100 hit. (laughs) 
as we have discussed in several episodes of Hit Parade, what made Nirvana's breakthrough so pivotal was how it made so many formerly underground acts commercially viable. Bands that Kurt Cobain lionized, like the Melvins and the Jesus Lizard, were signed to major label deals, despite those labels not really knowing what to do with them. In retrospect, it was a stretch to believe that noise rock and post-hardcore were going to become platinum-selling genres, even at that peak alternative rock moment. But that didn't mean punk in general had no commercial potential. You could argue that, even more than Pearl Jam or Soundgarden, the act that benefited the most from Nirvana's breakthrough wasn't a grunge band at all, but a straight-up punk band from Northern California. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Green Day had been a part of the Bay Area underground punk scene for nearly half a decade by the time Nirvana broke. On their 1992 album Kerplunk, band co-founders Billy Joe Armstrong, guitarist and vocalist, and Mike Durnt, bassist, had added drummer Trey Cool as a permanent member, settling on a three-man lineup. Kerplunk became the fastest and best-selling album on the small Berkeley, California punk label Lookout Records. Even on an indie label, Green Day's three-chord, hook-laden songs already sounded ready for the majors. Welcome to paradise. Billy Joe Armstrong said he was inspired to form Green Day by his fandom for Operation Ivy, the short-lived ska-punk band I mentioned earlier, who galvanized the late 80s Bay Area punk scene. 
but the antecedents for Green Day's sound really went back a decade further. As I noted near the top of the show, from punk's birth, a lot of the music had been unabashedly catchy. And even as punk splintered off into hardcore, post-hardcore, noise rock, and ska-core, a strain of punk bands maintained the emphasis on classic, often Beatlesque songwriting. Several were British, including the aforementioned Buzzcocks, as well as The Dam. Critics have noted that Billy Joe Armstrong's seemingly British-accented singing emulates this first wave of catchy punk. But during the 80s, American punk bands were also writing hooky songs, most notably the L.A. hardcore band The Descendants, and Minneapolis's Husker Du who moved from hardcore punk toward more melodic songs midway through their career. But none of these bands scored American radio hits or generated best-selling LPs. Green Day didn't invent the pop-punk genre, but they more or less perfected it, made it more accessible. The very term pop-punk became more common in the wake of Green Day. For his part, Billy Joe Armstrong hated the term pop-punk and felt that it was an oxymoron. Quote, you're either punk or you're not. Armstrong later told the thrashy rock magazine Kerrang! And Armstrong has a point. To reiterate, punk is, in the end, a genre, a style of rock. And it's what Green Day plays. The true believers might dispute this, but catchiness doesn't make it not punk. The breakthrough of Green Day in the mid-90s, even more than Nirvana's left-field success, would establish punk as a classic rock genre, really classic pop, severing its roots from the underground. And when Armstrong, Durnt, and Cool signed to Warner Music and issued their major label debut, Dookie, in 1994, they proved pop punk's potential almost immediately. bass-heavy, fiendishly catchy Longview, an ode to suburban ennui, topped Billboard's modern rock chart in June of 94. This won the band a slot on that year's Lollapalooza touring festival and, even more critically, the summer's most hyped mega-concert. 
Woodstock 94, the now less heralded but also less infamous sequel to the original 1969 Woodstock, five years before the disastrous Woodstock 99. Remembered as Mudstock after a massive rainstorm made the Saugerties New York show a total mess, Woodstock 94 also made Green Day. The band, who had titled their major label debut after a nickname for feces, engaged in a mud fight with the audience partway through their set. You wanted punk? Green Day were capital P punk, stamped with a trademark symbol. This isn't love and peace, it's fucking anarchy! The week after their gleeful Woodstock set, Green Day were back atop the modern rock chart with an even catchier song than Longview, the caffeinated, classically punk Basket Case. Sometimes my mind plays tricks on me It all keeps adding up I think I'm cracking up And am I just paranoid? Am I just up? Basket Case stayed at number one for more than a month. Two weeks after Woodstock 94, the Dookie album had broken into the top 10 on the Billboard 200 album chart and gone platinum. It would be quadruple platinum by the end of 1994, on its way to eventual sales of 10 million copies in America alone. Green Day's instant success in 94 could have been seen as a fluke in punk crossover. But the near-simultaneous success of a second band made it seem more like a trend, and this band had been knocking around the California punk scene even longer than Green Day. Formed in Orange County in the mid-80s, The Offspring, led by vocalist and molecular biologist Dexter Holland, seriously, he eventually defended his PhD, had by the mid-90s been gigging around Southern California for the better part of a decade. They'd signed to the celebrated independent punk label Epitaph Records, and in 1992 issued the LP Ignition, which saw strong sales in the SoCal scene but drew little national attention. That would change in 1994. You gotta keep them separated. While still on indie label Epitaph, the offspring did the seemingly impossible scoring a major hit on national radio. Come Out and Play, parentheses, Keep Em Separated, broke onto the modern rock chart in the early summer of 1994. The week Green Day's Longview reached number one, Come Out and Play had cracked the top ten, the only song on the chart without major label distribution. Six weeks later, The Offspring had the top modern rock hit. Out and Play was the lead single from the album 
Smash, which was just that, and it kept spinning off catchy pop punk hits. Self-esteem was a SoCal punk anthem with a quintessentially Gen X theme, sardonic defeatism over an inability to get laid. By the time it cracked the top 10 on both the modern and album rock charts, The Offspring's album was triple platinum, now certified for U.S. sales of 6 million and global sales of 11 million, Smash remains the best-selling independently released album of all time. The twin forces of Green Day and Offspring made 1994 the year pop-punk broke. By early 95, when Green Day were back on top of the rock charts with the crunchy When I Come Around, even Top 40 Radio was on board. When I Come Around made the top 10 on Billboard's Radio Songs chart, drawing about as much pop airplay as hits by Boys to Men, Sheryl Crow, and TLC. The Green Day song was never issued as a retail single. As we discussed in our Great War Against the Single episode, many 90s radio hits remained album cuts, making them ineligible for the Hot 100. But if the song had been a single, Green Day would have had a massive pop hit. The breakthrough of pop punk made it possible for other loud, fast bands to break on the radio and the charts. Hardcore punk veterans Bad Religion, who'd been together since 1980, and whose guitarist Brett Gerwitz founded Epitaph, the indie label that had released The Offspring, scored their first-ever gold album in 94 with Stranger Than Fiction. Oh yeah, cockroach naps, rattling traps. How many devils can you fill up on a magic? Curiosity killed the Kerouac cat. Sometimes truth is stranger than fiction. Rancid a band founded in 1991 by members of the former Operation Ivy, had their breakthrough in 1995 with their third Epitaph album, And Out Come the Wolves. The hit Time Bomb went top 10 at Modern Rock, and the album quickly went gold and eventually platinum. Even Hole fronted by Courtney Love, revived their year-old album Live Through This with Violet, a song that was less like grunge and more like Hole's original punk roots. By the time Violet peaked in the spring of 95, Live Through This was platinum. It was a study in before and after. Punk acts with modest hits before 1994 became stars afterward. 
For example, in 1993, the Mighty Mighty Boston's, a Boston ska punk band that combined aggro rock with brass and skanky rhythms, eked out a top 20 modern rock hit with Someday I Suppose. Their 93 LP, Don't Know How to Party, spent one week on the album chart at number 187. Two years after the pop-punk breakthrough, the Boss Tones came back and topped the modern rock chart with The Impression That I Get, and their 1997 album, Let's Face It, went platinum. end of the 90s, as pop radio playlists swung toward flossy hip-hop and glossy dance pop, alternative rock seemed like it might be on the wane. But that's when another rising band took the mainstreaming of punk even further, translating it for the teen pop era. Blink-182, formed in San Diego County, had been on a steady rise through the mid-90s. Originally known simply as Blink, until another band called Blink forced them to change it and they tacked on a random three-digit number, Blink-182 signed to a major label in 1997. MCA Records, which took nearly a year to break their album Dude Ranch and its single Damn It. Dude Ranch finally went gold in 1998. During the year-long slog of promotion and touring, the group, led by guitarist Tom DeLonge and bassist and primary vocalist Mark Hoppus, fired their drummer and hired Travis Barker to replace him. With their lineup established, Blink entered 1999 with a growing army of young fans, and they made the most of it. I took her out, it was a Friday night, I walk alone to get the feeling right. We started making out, and she took off my pants, but then I turned on the TV, and that's about the time she walked away from me. Nobody likes you when you're 23. A signature anthem of pop punk, mixed by engineer Tom Lord Algy for maximum radio catchiness, What's My Age Again turned Blink-182 into superstars and defined their cheeky, bratty persona. The video, depicting Hoppus, DeLong, and Barker running naked through the streets of Los Angeles, made them MTV fixtures. And just in time. We're stoked to have them. Make some noise, TRL, for Blink-182, guys. Blink-182's breakthrough coincided with the peak of MTV's live afternoon show, Total Request Live. In a summer when TRL was dominated by the maximalist Max Martin pop of the Backstreet Boys, reality, 
Britney Spears. the aggressive rap rock of Limp Bizkit. Blink-182's antics fit right in. They were winsome enough for the Britney and Backstreet fans and aggro enough for the Limp fans. And they were unafraid to lean into the pop side of pop punk. Blink-182's follow-up single, All the Small Things, became their biggest hit of all, topping the modern rock chart for two months in late 1999 and even reaching number six on the Hot 100 in early 2000. Arguably, it was pop-punk's first ever top ten pop hit. Blink-182's 1999 album Enema of the State became a long-running smash, riding the album chart for more than a year and a half and eventually certified quintuple platinum. The pop-punk floodgates had swung wide open. The Offspring, now on a major label, went all the way pop and a little hip-hop on their satirical early 99 smash, Pretty Fly for a White Guy. And all the girlies say I'm pretty fly for a white guy. And by 2000, an even newer generation of pop-punk acts were starting to break on the radio and TRL, including Ontario, Canada's Sum 41. of this frothy fun, however, another scene was attracting a different kind of punk fan. The playing was like punk, but the tunes were more introspective, the lyrics far more contemplative. Off the charts and in the underground, bands like Milwaukee's The Promise Ring sounded far removed from the antics of pop punk. The seeds of this more emotional scene had been sown years earlier, both by indie acts like The Promise Ring and even by a hard-to-pigeonhole platinum act who served up some brooding along with their bangers. When we come back, how emo rose alongside, then merged with pop punk, boosted by brainiacs and fueled by ramen, until it became a fever you couldn't sweat out. Non-Slate Plus listeners will hear the rest of this episode in two weeks. For now, I hope you've been enjoying this episode of Hit Parade. Our show was written, edited, and narrated by Chris Melanthi. That's me. My producer is Asha Saluja, and we also had help from Rosemary Belson. 
June Thomas is the senior managing producer and Gabriel Roth, the editorial director of Slate Podcasts. Check out their roster of shows at slate.com slash podcasts. You can subscribe to Hit Parade wherever you get your podcasts, in addition to finding it in the Slate Culture feed. If you're subscribing on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review us while you're there. It helps other listeners find the show. Thanks for listening, and I look forward to leading the Hit Parade back your way. We'll see you for part two in a couple of weeks. Until then, keep on marching on the one. I'm Chris Melanthi. It's a heartbreaker.